welcome. Uh, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, and as you've heard this morning, we've been on this series talking about our mission, vision, and values. And today we have the wonderful opportunity to start talking about these individual values. Now, all of us have things that we consider to be valuable in our lives. Sometimes we don't pause to think about that. Sometimes we don't have the thought go through our head, well, what is the value of my values? But we all have values. They show up, for example, every time that you fiddle with your wedding ring to make sure that it's still there. It shows that that ring and what it symbolizes is important to you. If you see your spouse maybe not wearing it, you'll remind them to put it back on. Or you might be curious as to why they're not wearing their wedding ring, because you value it. Relationships. We value relationships greatly here at this church and, and in our own lives as well. <clears throat> and sometimes we don't realize how much we value them until they become strained, until we start to have a, a tension in a relationship. Then our response, our emotional response to that tension reveals just how much we actually value that person. We value our faith. And that's evident through the fact that if somebody were to question, challenge, or ridicule you for your faith, you respond in a negative sense. If you didn't care, if you didn't value your faith, it wouldn't matter to you. But you do, so we do respond. You see, therefore, values are these things that exist in our world. They exist in our organizations, and they can be defined as convictions that guide our actions and reveal our priorities. Now, these happen within us as individuals, but they also exist within organizations. And they are, in those cases, shared convictions that we have. And to give an example of some shared convictions that guide actions and reveal priorities, uh, I want to go back in time a little bit, back to 1963, when President Kennedy articulated a vision to be the first nation to go to space and land one of their citizens upon the moon. He said, by the end of the decade, we're going to achieve this. But inherent to how they went about doing that, we can see what their values were, because they had, they had many, many different values that guided their directions, but one of the clearest was the preservation of human life, and that guided their action. And we share that value with them. It's a, it's a shared value that exists. Because if you've ever watched any of those space movies like Apollo 13, the most edge-of-your-seat, tension-filled moments are when they're wondering, are they going to get the guys back home? Those are the most tensious moments in the whole movie. And as you know, through movies like that, they work furiously, and they have brilliant ingenuity to find ways to fit a square peg in a round hole to make that a reality, to land those men back on Earth. Imagine how different the movie would be. Imagine how different the space race would have been without that value. If there was no value for the preservation of human life. They could have saved billions of dollars. They could have saved months, if not years, of work and preparation if there was no concern about getting those men back home. Or after Neil Armstrong stepped on the mood and said the one giant leap for mankind, every back, everybody back in Houston high-fived each other switched off their monitors, and said, we wish you farewell. Totally different story. But why do we have the story we have? Because they valued the preservation of human life. Now, we as a church, we have a mission. Our mission is to invite people to experience a life that is better with Jesus, now and eternally. And we have six core values there are six core values that leadership has discerned that will be guiding our actions and revealing our priorities and helping us define what does a win look like in the days ahead. And so starting today, we have the opportunity to look at one of these each week and how it's revealed in Scripture, but also how I think Scripture shows it can be revealed through us and through our encounters with one another and with the community around us. And so we begin today 
with value number one, which we're referring to as countercultural love. Countercultural love, where we share God's never changing love with an ever changing world. We share God's never changing love. It has existed from before time. It will exist beyond today, and it is consistent and unchanging. However, as we know, our world tends to fluctuate. But one of the constants in that is God's never-changing love for all of us. Now, I want to help you grasp this a little bit, and, and I want to do so through painting a picture of what this looked like in Jesus' life and, and in his ministry towards other people. And we're going to find this in a story in John chapter 4. I invite you to, on your phones, your iPads, or if you want to grab a Bible in the pew in front of you, it's found on page 862. But in John chapter 4, we see a story that takes place early in Jesus' ministry when he's at this time around the area of Jerusalem down in Judea. And he's gaining popularity. As he gains popularity, he's gaining attention from the religious leaders. Now, the popularity he's gaining is, is because people are flocking to him. They, they love him. They love what he stands for and what he's doing. And the people are flocking to him. But the opposition, those who are in levels of authority, are entering into more increasing conflict with him. So things are starting to heat up as he's in this area down in Judea. So as you read in verse 3 and 4, so he left Judea and went back up north to Galilee, which is where he was originally from and raised. Now he had to go through Samaria to get there. As you can see on the map, the most direct route to get to Galilee from Judea is through Samaria. But that is not the typical route that people of that day would choose. You see, Jews who lived down in the Judean area who wanted to go up to Galilee, what they would do actually is they would head east to Jericho. They would actually cross the Jordan River, head north on that side of the Jordan River, and then cross back over into Galilee. Why would they go through such a detour? through such a headache of crossing rivers twice and going all the way, taking the long way around. Well, it's because of a long history of tension and disassociation that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans. Now, that goes back in history. They actually have common ancestry. If you were to give a Jew and a Samaritan one of those ancestry DNA tests, you'd find it all goes back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They have the same forefathers. But centuries before this time of Jesus, when Assyria had conquered the area of Israel and exiled its people into Babylon, excuse me, into Babylon, and then the Persians had repopulated that area with some of their own people and other foreigners. The remnant of Israel that stayed behind and these these Persians who came in, they intermingled, they mixed, and all of a sudden you had this syncretism that took place in the Samaritan region, the syncretism of culture, of traditions, and of religion. And over centuries of that having taken place, the Jews in Judea and up in Galilee looked down upon the Samaritans and referred to them as half-breeds, which, as you can imagine, is a very derogatory term to how they viewed them. So Jesus decides, however, to not take the typical route all the way around, but to go straight into the heart of Samaria. And so one day while he's there around noon, he comes to a town called Sachar, and he's hot, he's tired, He's, he's thirsty from his long journey. It's midday. The sun is high. It's over 40 degrees. His disciples have gone on to buy food, and they leave him to sit and rest against a well. And as we find him resting against that well, in verse 7 we read, a Samaritan woman came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? And the Samaritan said to him, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? 
for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now, the scene might not seem too unusual to us. It's a hot day. You're leaning against a well. Somebody comes along to, to draw water. You would naturally ask them for a drink. It's, it's a natural thing to do in that situation from our perspective. But if you were to take the story back to Jesus' first century audience, they would be absolutely shocked that this is happening. They would expect Jesus to barely acknowledge her existence, yet alone talk to her, engage her, to speak to her. You see, these people come from two different worlds, from two completely different cultures. They're divided by a history. They're divided by a religion. They're divided by attitudes about each other. Had the Pharisees seen this, they surely would have condemned Jesus for this encounter. For once again, talking with sinners and those that he shouldn't be associating with would have been their response. But Jesus flips the question on her. You see, she had asked him, how can you ask me for a drink? But the beginning of verse 10, he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him for a drink. And he would give you living water. Sir, the woman says, you have nothing to draw water with, and this well is very deep. Where can you possibly get this living water from? Are you greater than our father Jacob? No, he's the one who gave us this well, and he drank from it his very self, as did his sons and his livestock. To which Jesus answers, everyone who drinks this water, this water in this well, you'll thirst again. But whoever drinks the water that I give them, they will never thirst again. Indeed, the water I give them will become like a spring of water that wells up to eternal life. The woman said to him, very interested by this point, Sir, give me this water so that I won't have to come back here and be thirsty and, and I won't have to come back here and draw water again from this deep well. Have you ever tried explaining to some, something to somebody and, and they're just not getting it? Like they're just, you're thinking, is it me? Is it the words I'm using? Is it you? Are you just not interested? Because it feels like I'm explaining calculus to a toddler right now. That's kind of what's happening here. There's a disconnect in the communication taking place between Jesus and this woman. And here's what the disconnect is. This woman is, has her mind set upon earthly things. But Jesus is trying to draw her attention towards the heavenly. You see, she's thinking about the earthly water she came to retrieve. Jesus is trying to introduce her to the heavenly water that she can receive. She's fixated upon what she can retrieve herself. And Jesus is saying, I have something else that you can receive. She hears the word living water. She thinks cold, flowing, pure streams of water that run through the desert. And she thinks to herself, there's never been one. Jacob dug this well because there was no stream back then and there's no stream now, hence the well. That's why we need the well, because there are no streams through this area. And Jesus speaks to her and says, this living water you're looking for is different. This living water that I'm speaking of will eliminate the spiritual thirst that exists within you. And if we quench that, it will lead to eternal life. And that he is the source of that life. That he is the one who can create that spring of water that wells up within a person. Now she stumbled on the metaphor. She didn't understand the metaphor he was using when he spoke to her about this living water. But the question still hangs in the air. The question still hangs in the air. Will she ask Jesus for a drink of living water? He's asked her for a drink of earthly water. Will she ask him for a drink of heavenly water? You see, she was expecting him to produce this jug of cold, refreshing water for her body. 
But Jesus walks through the door of her life that she's open for him now. And he begins to discuss a bit of a deeper thirst that exists within her soul. Now, it gets even more shocking in the conversation. This, this conversation shouldn't even be happening from the cultural standpoint of the day. But Jesus plunges even deeper into her life now when he says to her, Go, call your husband and come back to me. Well, I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. In fact is, you've actually had five husbands, and the man that you're now with is not your husband either. What you have said is, is quite true. Now, the primary point that Jesus is drawing here is not necessarily about her divorces. You see, he, he draws to the surface her divorces because that is evidence of a deeper spiritual root of a problem that exists. See, Jesus isn't drawing this out because he's trying to judge her life. He's trying to dredge her life. You know what dredging is? If you've ever worked in a farm or in a pond or maybe up in some of the northern areas where you need to dredge the water. You look at a pond and it is beautifully clean on the surface, but if you get below the surface, it's, it, it, there's, there's garbage and weeds entangled and you, sometimes you can't get a boat through it. You can't pull out what you need to get out of it because of all the, the stuff stuck in the mud under the surface of that pristine water on top. You need to dredge down to the depths to pull to the surface if you're going to clean it up. See, Jesus isn't judging her. He's dredging these things from her life. And as he does so, he dredges to the surface five failed marriages. And perhaps even the fact that she's given up on the institution of marriage. I've had five failed marriages. I'm living with this guy six times. Why would I do it six times? And he reveals this deeper thirst that exists within this woman. He reveals one that she's been trying to address through relationships with the wrong guys. And yet she keeps going back time and time again to the same well, to the same stagnant water. But what she really needs, what Jesus is trying to explain to her, what she really needs is the living water, not the stagnant water of the well. And now the conversation's getting uncomfortable, as you can imagine if you're in the shoes of this woman. The conversation's a little uncomfortable at this point. So she does what is a common strategy when you're in an uncomfortable conversation. She thinks, I will bring up a point that is, is very controversial because that will just be a, a conversation stopper right there. And so she brings up a statement about places of worship. She says, sir, I, I can see that you're a prophet. You know things about me that you shouldn't know. So clearly you're a messenger from God. You must be a prophet. But hey, hey you know, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain and, and you Jews claim that this place over here is where we have to worship in Jerusalem. They, they say in conversations to never bring up what? Religion and politics, right? She just brought up both in one sentence. She's trying to put an end to this conversation that's getting uncomfortable. But, but instead of ending the conversation, bringing up something that they would never agree upon, Jesus actually uses this to reveal the source of living water. And we read this in verse 21 as he continues. And he says, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. What he's saying there, you see, part of the, uh, part of the um, compromise that the Samaritans had made during this time of syncretism is, is they had uh, not believed in the full Bible that, that the Jews had believed in, the full Holy Scriptures. The Samaritans believed in the, in the Pentateuch from, from Genesis to Deuteronomy. That is the sum total of the religious literature that the Samaritans had. And if you only have that, you have no prophecies about a Messiah. 
You have no divinic kingdom that you can believe in. You have no sense of these, these future forward-looking messianic prophecies that exist. So he says to her, he says to her, you worship the true God. You know God because he revealed himself through your forefathers. You have that part of the scripture, but you don't understand the Messiah. Now the Jews have the full scriptures. They have the full writing, so they understand the Messiah must come from them. Yet he continues, a time is coming and has now actually come when the true worshiper will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in the truth. To this the woman replied, I know the Messiah called to Christ will come. You know, when he comes, he'll explain it to me, and he'll explain all this to you as well. To which Jesus says, I, the one who am speaking to you, am he. Now, because of their similar roots, they knew who the true God was. But they had this limited exposure because they had limited exposure to the scriptures. Um, just to put a little plug in for your Bible reading schedule, if you are using the online notes, there is a Bible reading schedule offered there so that you can be plugged in on a regular basis to God's word. But while the Jews knew who the Messiah was to be, where he came from, both of those groups needed someone to point out that he had arrived. They both needed someone to say, he is here. And that God will not be worshipped in a temple that exists in, in the middle of some culture's kingdom. But rather, he's come to reveal a kingdom of God, which we, we talked about here, if you're with us right after Christmas and in the new year. We talked about this kingdom of God that would reign within a person. And that true worship would be worship in spirit and in truth, not in geographical location, but in spirit and in truth. And, and these two verses are actually, these two points are actually related. This idea of worshiping in spirit, that, that God's spirit would be the source of worship within his people. When we come together to worship, when that feeling of wanting to express joy in this place, in your home, in your car, when you're driving to work, listen to your favorite worship song, understand that it's not just a, something that that is chemically, emotively responded through your brain, that, that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that the Holy Spirit indwells you, and it longs to rejoice and celebrate God's goodness and presence in your life. That God is the source of true worship for his people who have accepted and received that. But that's where the idea of truth comes in. How do we receive that? How does that come into us? Well, we clearly see through the book of John that when John talks about truth, 25 times in the book of John alone, he talks about truth. It is closely linked to Jesus. Such as in John 14, 6, when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father. No one enters into a relationship with the Father. No one truly understands that spiritual worship of the Father except through me. So we will worship in spirit and in truth. Now this woman has a deep spiritual thirst within her. But she has yet to actually see Jesus as the source of that living water. So for the first time, Jesus declares to her, I am the awaited Messiah. And, and as we keep reading beyond this verse, as her eyes become opened, and she begins to believe, and, and she like literally drops everything where she is and runs back to town, and this, this woman who is not overly popular in her town, she starts talking to people and inviting them to come and see. Come and see the man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Now, it's a bit of an exaggeration, just everything you ever did. I think her life consisted of more than five and a half marriages. But... It had such a deep impact upon her. And that her question, could this be the Messiah, is actually a question of longing. It's a question for others to see what she has seen, to confirm what she's starting to believe and understand within her own heart. 
And as the town comes to see, they too believe. Jesus stays with them for a while, and we see that in the region of Samaria, many, many, many become believers. Because Jesus walked into Samaria and talked to a woman at a well. It's a great story. It's a fantastic story. But you might be wondering, what does any of this have to do with our value of countercultural love? Well, to answer that question, I want to invite you to consider these events through the eyes of each person. First of all, from the perspective of the Samaritan woman who walked to the well that day, she, like most people, was going through her daily routine. She got up in the morning, she went to work, she went home, she slept, repeat. Get up, work, home, sleep, repeat. Get up, work, home, sleep, repeat. Sound familiar? A lot of us have routines, and that's how our days tend to go. But as she walks to the well, all alone, mind you, she's alone not just in person, but I think she'd be alone with her thoughts too. And this, this sense that she's never quite able to escape, that this, this emptiness inside that she's never able to fully detach herself from, as she walks to the well by herself in silence, she thinks, five failed marriages. On my way to number six. Maybe it'll be different this time. And she feels that loneliness. Notice there's no other women around her. That, that's, that's not the time of day you go to gather water. See, she was the only one going at noon because you don't gather water at noon. The other women would come gather water. That was one of the responsibilities women in the household had. But, but the other women would come together later on. They would come as a group. It was a social activity. They would wait until the sun got a little lower, until it was a little cooler, because it's hard work to carry giant jugs of water. Why is she going at noon? It's commonly believed she was going at noon because she was trying to avoid the shame, the ridicule, the harassment of these other women because she was a sinful person because of these divorces. And so she's alone with the weight. Every step she takes alone to get water at noon, she knows why she's going at noon on her own. And perhaps as you think of her story, maybe the weight of your own story, of your past wrongs, maybe some of the weight of your present burdens, you know that those are always before you. Those are always weighing heavy on your mind as well. Well, this particular day was different for this woman. Because this time when she gets to the well, Jesus is leaning against it. And as she gets closer, he greets her, and he requests her to give him some water. Now his words, his smile, his eyes, they say to her in that moment, dear woman, I see you. And as he continues to talk with her and, and a little longer, and he starts to address some of the hurts within her life, he, he's saying, dear woman, I know you. And as he then points to the source of living water that he wants to offer to her, he says, dear woman, I love you. I see you. I know you. I love you. Words spoken from the Messiah that touched the deep thirst that existed in this woman's life. She came to retrieve water for her body. She came to get water out of this, this deep, deep well. They think they, the well still exists there today. That you can go back and see it. It's over 100 feet deep. And at the bottom of that well is this warm, stagnant water. It's hard to get. It's difficult. And you got to do it over and over again. That's what she came to retrieve. But in the end, she receives this living water that is freely given, that is freely accessible to all people, that refreshes the soul, and that lasts eternally and leads to this spring of water welling up within a person. And as we read in verse 13 and 14, Jesus says, whoever drinks this water in this well, you will thirst again. But the water I give you 
the spiritual water I long to give you that, that will well up within you, you will never thirst again because I can satisfy the thirst that exists within yourself. She has the opportunity to experience for the first time a life that is better with Jesus from that point and into all eternity. And as new life starts to well up within her, we see that worshiping taking place, that, that joy that flows out of her as she runs back to town to tell others that they can have that living water too. You see, Jesus' love is countercultural because it is unlike anything else that you will find in this world. It is only available through him. You will find no love like his apart from him. Jesus said in John 7, 37, let anyone who thirsts, let anyone who has that spiritual thirst that, that exists, that longing for something beyond themselves, that, that part of their life that says, is this all there is to life? And they know that's a spiritual question they're asking. Let that person come and find the living water that I can provide them through the Father. And if they thirst and they come to me and they drink, then waters of living water will flow through them. You see, whatever, whatever thirst exists within you, Jesus promises that that can be replaced with the spirit of truth. That is a promise that is made. And Jesus' love is countercultural in its form as it comes from him. But what can we learn about countercultural love from the example of Jesus in this encounter? Well, we see that Jesus was willing to cut through the cultural norms. The things that should have, according to culture, prevented him from seeing this woman, from knowing this woman, from wanting to love this woman. He cut through those. And instead, Jesus goes into this territory that nobody else wanted to go into. And he goes and he speaks to a woman, which was forbidden for a male Jew to do. A woman who has a long history of sin, which was inappropriate for a rabbi to go do. And to a Samaritan woman who was inappropriate for a Jewish person to speak to. Three strikes against her. Three reasons, all very valid in that culture, why he should not even acknowledge her existence. And we see this echoed in verse 9, where in, 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 in brackets it says, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. That's the law of the land. That's how it works. That's why John included that as a footnote in that verse. Jews do not associate with Samaritans. That's how it works. That's the culture of the day. But because Jesus did, associate with the Samaritan. Because he would not allow those labels that would define her and define all of them to rule his actions to love people, her and her town came to believe and receive salvation. As you look at that phrase, I want to challenge you a little bit. I want to look at, you look at that phrase and ask yourself, is there a way it could be rewritten that actually reveals something within yourself? For I or we do not associate with who? For Edmontonians, don't associate with Calgarians. And all the people said, amen. <laughs> West Enders, don't associate with Millwoods people. I still live in Millwoods, by the way. <laughs> or maybe more serious ones. Maybe you would fill in that blank with, with some form of uh, a people group and an ethnicity. Maybe you say, well, I don't associate with that person with the piercings and the tattoos. I don't associate with that person of a certain social class or economic challenge. I don't associate with homeless people. I, I just kind of look, and they're at street corner looking for money. I just pretend they're not there. Maybe you say, well, Christians don't associate with Muslims. How do you fill in that? 
Who do you not associate with? Who, who do we apparently not supposed to associate with? Now, I'm not suggesting that by filling that blank with whatever you want, that makes everything acceptable. That makes everything right and everything equal. That, that, that'd actually be foolish because, because not everything can be simultaneously true. That there is truth that exists out there. But you notice that Jesus led off with grace. Jesus led off by saying, you know what? I need to enter into this woman's life. I need to see her and I need to know her before I can share the truth with her. So however we fill that blank in, it reveals to people that perhaps grace needs to extend, not at the cost of truth, not at the cost of truth, but as a process to enter into their life so that we can reveal truth, so they can receive truth, they can know it for themselves. And how we answer that question, if, if there's a way that you can fill in blanks on that question, it also reveals something in yourself that maybe needs to be dredged up. And if that gets dredged up, I would suggest you it needs to be confessed. Because these are the divides that we have from an earthly perspective. But from a heavenly perspective, they melt away. You see, from a heavenly perspective, there aren't these different groups. When God looks down, he says, I sent my son into the world because I love all the world. Because all were created in the image of God. Everyone has value. As a person created in the image of God, that means you have an inherent value that God looked at you, created you, and loved you. Loved you enough that he says, even though all of us also have fallen short of God's glory. Meaning all of us are in one common group as sinners. All of us have done things in the past that have wronged other people, have violated God's commands. They've all put us in a point where regardless of our, of our geographic, ethnic diversities, whatever it may be, we are all on level ground before the cross as sinners. And we're all in the same group as being people that Jesus died for. He says, you have value. I created you and I love you. I love you enough that because you are in your time of sin that I sent Jesus to pay the price for you that you could all come in and be part of one citizen of one kingdom, the kingdom of God. You see, there are these earthly divides that exist. There's these cultural divides that exist. But Jesus' love is countercultural in its object as well as its form. In its object because he loves everybody. He's not limited. His love is not limited by the divides that we sometimes impose upon ourselves. Now, he also loves them too much to leave them where he finds them. He loved this woman too much to leave her in, in the, these five and a half marriages at the well. He didn't just love her and send her on her way. He loved her, and as he grew to know her and share with her, he then pointed her in a new direction, according to the truth and the love of God. Sometimes the most loving thing we can do is share truth with a person. The truth of an area where they can, they can find greater freedom, greater joy, and greater success. But I want to suggest to you strongly that begins by entering into the person and first saying, I see you, I know you, and I love you too much to leave you there. Jesus said in John 14, 12, very truly, whoever believes in me will do the works I do. He says you'll do even greater things than these. This is the example of countercultural love that Jesus sets for us. It's unique in its form. It's unique in its object. It's unique in its form because it's like unlike anything you will find in this world apart from him. And it's unique in his form because he loves you, he loves me, he loves all people to the point where he sent his son to die for all people, that they would come to know his truth and grace. He loves all of us enough to die for us, that we could be with him eternally.
And so as the worship team comes to join me back on the platform here, I just want to leave you with this thought, that may we follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. May we follow in those footsteps to see people, to know people, and to love people in grace and in truth, so that we may be known as a church that shares God's never-changing love with an ever-changing world.